Yes, sir. Is my presentation in one of my books? Uh, well, bits and pieces of it are probably in all of my books, but it will later tonight be at davidswanson.org and lots of other websites. Uh, in the front row and then the second row. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, uh, best speech I've ever heard. <laughs> but I, uh, before I came here, I was chatting with my brother-in-law, and I was telling him about your work. And uh, his my brother-in-law's point is uh, wars nowadays aren't between nations. There's lots of interesting stuff, whether it's civil wars or groups like ISIS. And so I'd like, if you could, speak to this question of, because I was telling them about the Kellogg-Briand Pact and, um, and eliminating war. And so the question is, uh, speak to this issue of non-national war. Yeah. Maybe nations against non-national groups. Yeah. So war is not always fought by nations. Perfectly true. Uh, it can be fought by groups that aspire to be nations or groups that are opposition to national governments. Uh, but it's you know it's always armed by nations. Uh, there are six nations providing 80% of the weaponry with which the wars are fought, and uh, U.S.-made weaponry is typically nowadays on both sides or multiple sides of wars. Uh, so there is, a, there is a purpose in restraining war-making by nations. Um, I think, you know, the, the idea that because ISIS isn't a nation, we can't get rid of war, I don't think... Uh, can be supported. Um, ISIS was created by the war on Iraq, the war in Syria, the militarizing and arming of the region, the bitter resent resentments created by hateful policies like ones being enacted uh, down the road here this week. Uh, and when ISIS puts out a full-length movie saying, we want to be seen as the leading edge of resistance to the United States because it has become so hated. Please, please come fight us. And the United States says, oh, okay. You know, and Rachel Maddow says, oh, well, ISIS's first choice was a U.S. ground war. The U.S. is just going to bomb them. You know, as if giving ISIS its second choice is like the ideal foreign policy. Uh, you know, it, this is counterproductive. You know, the U there have been endless opportunities for real peace agreements and ceasefires and beginnings of disarmament and actual effective aid uh, in Syria and Iraq that the U.S. government has intentionally sabotaged. You know, there was a, I cited this before, but this article in the Smithsonian Magazine many months ago now with a U.S. Air Force expert saying, we've got this technology to drop food and supplies on people accurately from high up in high winds. You know, the United Nations is failing at this. They're dropping food in Syria so far from people they never find the food. We could do it. But it costs some tens of thousands of dollars, $60,000 a pop to use. So we would never use it. We would never waste it on a merely humanitarian operation. Right? So when this is the priorities of your government, right? unless it's killing people, we can't spend serious money. That would be irresponsible. Whereas saving people actually makes them less eager to kill you. You know, this is not rocket science. Uh, you know, we've got, to, we've got to try a different approach. Um, yeah, second row. Uh, thank you again for your uh, talk. It was very uh, helpful. 
Uh, and I, want, I do want to applaud the point of uh, uh, understanding the extent to which making history as good versus evil is very problematic. We need to see the sophistication of what happened. Understand that there are a lot of bad policies, not necessarily somebody who's good and somebody who's bad. My question to you is that often, and I find the hardest argument against people who uh, are arguing for war, is that they say, practically speaking, you don't get results, right? So can you speak with an actual example of how uh, uh, national security through civilian-based defense um, is a practical policy, an effective policy choice, uh, and in that, imagine Chamberlain and accusing him of appeasement, right? Because obviously Chamberlain failed. Uh, how do you see, practically speaking, a policy recommendation that is convincing to people who argue that war is uh, a necessary evil? Well, we will, we will see when I get those forms back that are going around, if anyone filled out the last column on the right, whether anything I said was convincing. Uh, but, uh, you know, I recommend uh, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stephan's book on nonviolence that gives numerous examples of how nonviolence has been used, uh, you know, in most cases against tyrannical government domestically, but in some handful of cases and growing against foreign invasions and occupations. Uh, and, you know, if you want to look for something that doesn't work, that doesn't get results, you know, name me a recent U.S. war that, that was won. Name me a recent U.S. war that made us safer. Name me a recent U.S. war that, uh, you know, protected our freedoms or expanded our freedoms. You know, I mean, if you want to look for an absolute failing enterprise, this is it. But the, but the studies, like Chenoweth's, that look at uses of violence and uses of nonviolence around the world over the past 100 years, find that nonviolence is over twice as likely to succeed, and those successes are far longer lasting on average. Now, twice as likely to succeed does not mean anything close to guaranteed to succeed. It just means twice as likely. So if you want to resort to the most powerful tool in the most extreme circumstances, you resort to tools of nonviolence. Uh, you know, this is very hard for people to understand, but if, if Donald Trump tries to eliminate all climate research and none of the people working in the US government go along and they all send the EPA website to friends who build other websites and say, hey, we're going to keep it here, then it isn't, then it doesn't go away. If Donald Trump wants to deport people, but they can't get them into the airports and onto the airplanes because everybody says, no, you don't, well, then he can't deport people. And if, can't, let's, let me slander the great nation of Canada now, if Canada wanted to invade and occupy the United States, but we didn't want to be occupied, and we didn't obey any orders, and we didn't cooperate in any way, we wouldn't be occupied. Uh, and if we, try, if we tried to use violence in that work, it would probably, in most cases, be counterproductive. Um, and you know, even in the, you know, the, the quintessential fear and horror of the Nazis, the incredible successes of the nonviolent resistance in Scandinavia and Holland and in Eastern Europe uh, and in Berlin that showed such potential 
those, you know, are the sort of things we ought to be building on. Uh, and as the, as the, the examples start to pile up of nonviolence used against foreign attack, not just against domestic tyranny, uh, the case will become, you know, more and more and more convincing. Um, but I think the endless uses of violence, all of which fail on their own terms, is equally convincing. Uh, you know, we ought to stop doing what doesn't work and try something else. So let's go one, two, and then back over to this side, three. Thank you very much. It was a very stimulating talk. And uh, I just want to point to something uh, uh, of a different sort, but it has to do with well, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, a different sort. It has to do with the war, however. Uh, uh, and it's this. Um, uh, your, your topic was a just war. And uh, the just war theory had to do with I think the idea that uh, you've got an imperfect world and people are inclined to do bad things, and so can you somewhat minimize the effect uh, of evil there, uh, both before the war and the just war, uh, there was debates about justice in the war, under the war, and justice after the war. Uh, for example, uh, Donald uh, uh, Trump, you know, now wants get the oil wells of Iraq because we want that war, but we failed to steal their, their oil wells. And uh, so, but, but what I want to point to is the idea of, besides these arguments, uh, there's also the question of image. Uh, sometimes someone stands up and presents an image that's unforgettable. And I want to just refer to one. A few days ago in the newspaper, there was a big report on the death of Charlie uh, Lidke and uh, big photographs and everything. And I happened to have known Charlie Lidke very, very well. We were both in the seminary together. And, of course, and, um, of course he was a very strange kind of a hero. He was one of the greatest heroes in the Vietnam War. And uh, he got the highest military medal for all the lives he saved, 20 people he, he, he rescued under fire. And so he was a great hero and was or, uh, awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, but then eventually, because he was opposed to war, he gave the medal back. And I don't think anybody has ever given back the highest medal uh, that the military has to offer. And all I want to say is, uh, we can talk about uh, the wars and so forth uh, in terms of principles and ideals and all the rest, but sometimes uh, there's something else that we need to have a reflect on, and that is images. You know, Charlie Lippi is an image, you know? He stands for something. What we remember about him stands for something. And we can talk about Dan Berrigan and Dorothy Day and so forth. Uh, but I think there needs to be some emphasis on lasting images that inspire us. Yes, thank you. Um, if, if you don't know about Charlie Litke, you should find out about him and get that image into your head. Um, he, and and watch, the, watch the recent movie about his ally in, in the peace struggle, Brian Wilson, called Paying the Price for Peace uh, as, a, as one means of, uh, of learning about him. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Thanks so much for the talk. Um, it's 
speaking of hero, being in the same room, two of my counterparts heroes, there's some government and self honor for me. Russian, uh, Russian propaganda outlet, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> One of the many that I, I follow every day. Uh, so I have a, a two part question, and, and uh, having to do with how we move forward and how we achieve our goals. Um, and at, at the march the other day, which did not mention more very much, um, uh, Michael Moore said we need to reform the Democratic Party. And most of the, my counterpunch pals would say hey, we need to form another party. Uh, and I'm just wondering what your take is on the path for electoral politics to move your goals and our goals forward. And, and secondly, because the, I mean, the weapons industry is driven by profit and it's just part of the bigger picture of the economic system that enslaves us all, do we get there, you know, do we lead bourgeois democracy along in Well, Emma Goldman said if voting ever changed anything, they would ban it because she saw that sort of insight that Howard Zinn had when he said it matters not as much who's sitting in the White House as who's doing the sit-ins. Uh, you know, the world is generally changed by nonviolent action that changes the culture, uh, not by votes in a polling booth. And I think that's a hundred times more true when you have an electoral system that is utterly corrupt. Right? I, I mean, I, I sort of understand, I can sympathize with the obsession over these thus far baseless accusations as to who gave the US public additional evidence that the Democratic Party had rigged its primary. But I'm also concerned that the Democratic Party was rigging its primary. And I'm concerned that the Republican candidate was given $3 billion worth of free airtime in comparison with his challengers. And I'm concerned that he openly tried to intimidate voters. And I'm concerned that Republican secretaries of state stripped thousands of people off the rolls because they might not be white and that more people were denied the right to vote in several states because they didn't have proper ID on them than was the difference in the outcome and that the Trump lawyers fought counting actual pieces of paper where they did exist. And so, I mean, it's a completely ruined electoral system that needs to be reformed. Uh, and, you know, if, if I were Rachel Maddow and my goal in life wasn't either to prove that Hillary really won or to start World War III, I wouldn't be wasting all this time on rumors about Russia that suggest that Trump might be, you know, corrupted by some foreign government. Trump is openly corrupted by numerous foreign governments. The biggest tenant in Trump Tower is a Chinese government bank that, from which, to which he owes tons of money every minute that he has that extension of credit and those rent payments and similar forms of corruption from numerous foreign governments and US state governments and the US government itself, he is in gross violation of the US Constitution, which is why we have over 300, maybe 400,000 people now signed on a website we just made called impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org. Uh, but he ought to be impeached also for his conduct in the election. And we ought to be making part of our agenda, in addition to peace and saving the environment and protecting people's rights, reforming the electoral system. We, you know, I'm not against elections. I think we should have one someday. Right now, we don't. You know, 
and, and, and we're not going to vote it in. We're not going to, you know, there, there are a handful of members of the House of Representatives who are better than the others, you know, and most of them are not quite as bad as the senators who are not quite as corrupted as the president. But you're, you're not going to get these people to destroy the system that gives them their power. You know, you're going to have to create a massive, nonviolent movement that changes the whole culture, that gets the states to effectively eliminate the Electoral College by distributing their votes proportionately, which they have every right to do, and 11 states have already decided, and so forth. You know, you're, you're going to have to change things locally and globally and resist Washington as you can, but to start obsessing now over who the hell to elect two years from now and to hold a march and have Debbie Wasserman Schultz on stage. I mean, this is a suggestion of insanity by Einstein's definition. Right? I mean, this is just lunacy. Right? This is not how you fix things. When the peace movement played the biggest role in giving the Democrats the House and the Senate in 2006, and the Washington Post asked Rahm Emanuel, who was running the Democratic show in the House, are you going to end the war now? Because that was the single biggest reason to vote in exit polls, end the war. What did he say? He said, you know, if we keep it around, we could run against it again in 2008. These are the people, the people who found the only candidate who could possibly lose to Donald Trump are now being turned to for what to do about him being in there and how to resist him? You gotta be kidding me. You know, so I, I'm, I'm not advocating putting everything into building some other party. I'm advocating changing the whole culture. I'm advocating following the lead of the people who spontaneously go to airports and protest injustice uh, and not the lead of big foundations with big money uh, and, you know, political campaigns to, uh, you know, as the driving force behind all of their, their pseudo-activism. Um, okay, so we, we had one over, okay, we got a bunch, so you, I'll leave it to you to keep, keep the microphone moving. <laughs> Up to you guys. normalization of mass murder in US society whereas you go back to the to the 1930s and they almost nationalized the weapons companies because they thought the private profiteering from war uh, was was just too immoral uh, you know now it's it's celebrated uh, and it's become normalized and we have teachers pensions uh, invested in the need for more wars uh, and we have 
media outlets in the same happy corporate families with weapons makers pushing the wars uh, and using Pentagon-funded uh, but unidentified as such spokespeople to push the wars on us. Uh, you know, I think one of the things we need to do is control local money, get it into local credit unions, get it divested from destructive forces. Uh, I mean, that's one of the, the things that ought to tie all our local activism together. Um, but we, we ought to be shaming the big war profiteers, the weapons dealers, uh, a lot of them right around here, uh, that are militarizing the globe, not just the U.S. government. The U.S. government is the weapons dealer to the world. Uh, and, you know, that ought to be, you know, the, the Pope went and stood in a joint session and said, you got blood on your hands and the arms trade. And they, and they stood up and cheered and escalated the arms trade. You know, we, we ought to take, we ought to take that moral demand a little more seriously. My wife and I have spent more time um, trying to find a way to help stop uh, the, the civil war in Syria because we see it as the single worst situation of today. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Uh, we need a little help, uh, and we don't know where things are going uh, in, uh, uh, in Putin's hands. Like your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, you start by not banning refugees from a place you're bombing and arming. Uh, you know, you start by welcoming those people. Um, but you've, you've had, you know, this latest attempt at a, at a ceasefire without the United States. The United States government needs to be pressured to join in actual efforts at ceasefire and to expand them to include arms embargoes. Uh, you know, stop arming, and you know, and and stop facilitating the entry of arms and fighters from Iraq into Syria. Uh, cut off aid to terrorists in Syria by. Saudi Arabia and Gulf states and Turkey. Look into, you know, there's this personality thing drives me crazy. The minute I say support Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard's uh, stop funding terrorists bill, people will start naming eight terrible things Tulsi Gabbard has done. Yeah, of course. I, I didn't say hold some person up as a model human being. I said pass a piece of legislation. The United States should not be arming fighters in Syria to overthrow the Syrian government or for any other reason. Uh, and if we can get a vote uh, on ending that uh, and then pressure and reward accordingly uh, until we can make it happen, so much the better. Um, but this, this ought to be part of the growing resistance to Donald Trump. Uh, which ought not to be simplistically and childishly resistance to Donald Trump if he does something right even if it's peace with Russia, even if it's peace with Russia so he can drill Russian oil and destroy the climate. You know, we, we ought to be able to encourage the good bits. But Trump campaigned against wars of overthrow. You know, Trump campaigned that this, that this was stupid and, and wrong and shouldn't continue. You know, now 
he seems to, like most presidents, be doing what the military wants him to do. Uh, and this should feed into the broader coalition of resistance on all of his other broken promises and kept good promises and, and so forth. Um, but you know, it, it has to also be seen as, as part of the US military establishment's efforts to create a break with Russia, to create hostility with Russia. Uh, you know, Russia is central to the US efforts to overthrow the government in Syria, and creating hostility with Russia is central to the goals in the so-called intelligence community and the Pentagon to create a new Cold War. Uh, and you know, we, have to, we have to understand and resist that, while also denouncing and resisting Russian war making in Syria, which is just as illegal and murderous as US war making in Syria. I don't care if you know, Assad likes it or not. Uh, it seems to me that uh, one of the problems of, uh, of not having peace is what Lyndon Johnson said in the Vietnam War. He said, the problem is uh, we, we need to have a war to win the hearts and minds of the people. And I'm wondering what's happening to win the hearts and minds. Donald Trump won the election, I think because he won the hearts and minds of a number of activist people that feel that he was correct. Now, Christianity has been trying for 2,000 years to have people be more peace-like. G.K. Um, Chesterton said that, well, it's not that Christianity has failed. It's that really, real Christianity has never been tried, which is to be nonviolent. So I don't know where we can get this optimism to make the world more peace-like and promote uh, peaceful resolution of conflicts. Maybe you have some ideas. Yeah, I'm not really an advocate for optimism or pessimism. I, I'm really not that interested in my personal mood so much as whether we stop slaughtering people by the millions, you know? Sometimes it takes optimism for people to be activists, and in that case, I want to give it to them. Uh, but I think they ought to break that dependency. Um, I, I think, you know, the sort of uh, hopium that people overdosed on eight years or so ago uh, was not actually helpful. I mean, there was a cycle of withdrawal a year or two after, you know? Um, I, I, but I do think that this idea that you can't end all war because we haven't ended all war yet, you know, flies in the face of, you know, the, the virtual ending of systems of slavery that enslaved the majority of human beings just a couple centuries back, the, you know, the ending of lynching, the ending of trial by ordeal, the ending of dueling, and you know, and people didn't say, well, let's keep defensive dueling, you know, let's have the good dueling. You know, we're going to end this barbaric institution. We're going to solve things in a better way. Well, this can be done with war. And the idea that it can't, you know, that it's somehow in our history or our economics or our DNA, I mean, it's just ludicrous. For the most, most of the prehistory of our species, there was nothing to resemble war. Uh, and during you know, modern history, war has been sporadic. It's here, it's not there, there's always a war somewhere, but there's always not a war most places. 
and most people have never had anything to do with it, even in this greatest war-making nation ever. Most people, 95% of people at least, have nothing to do with participating in war. And there have been thus far zero cases of PTSD from war deprivation. But you put people in war and they suffer and they have to be conditioned to do it mindlessly and then they can't be reconditioned back out of it and they suffer. Uh, and so it's, it's the furthest thing from natural. It's the furthest thing from inevitable. Uh, if you want to find an example of human beings investing radically less, often zero, in war and war preparations than what the United States does right now, you need only look at the other 96% of humanity. You know, and to write them off as exceptions to this is human nature, you know, those other 96% of humans, they're somehow outside of human nature, you know, it is just a little too U.S. centric, uh, you know, for even your, your, your hardcore nationalist. Uh, you know, war is not uh, unavoidable. War is perfectly endable. Uh, we just have to set our minds to it and do it, uh, and do it by reasonable stages. You know, we're not going to do it by next Tuesday, but unless we have that understanding that it can be done and we're going to move in that direction, it'll never happen, you know, and we'll have peace groups opposing this war because we got to be better prepared for that war or opposing this weapon because it doesn't work, doesn't kill enough people, the military doesn't want it, let's have the good, efficient killing weapons. No, we need a peace movement that moves toward abolishing war, uh, even though we know we're not going to get there this year. Uh, and, and so that requires, you know, the basic understanding that of course we can, you know, outside of, you know, certain drives of hunger and thirst and so forth, there's, there's no human need for something like war. It's an institution that takes massive investment and organizing to create. It can be uncreated uh, very easily. Um, and we should be, you know, we should be full steam ahead working on it. Can you recommend um, one or two websites that deal with global issues or international issues that you would feel is uh, generally uh, their articles are accurate? Uh, well, I'm sure there are mistakes everywhere, um, but I would avoid, uh, you may have heard of these, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, I, I mean, selectively, when there is a, an important article and you can check it out, make use of it. But I would go to, uh, you know, sites with reporting and commentary and republication from elsewhere, uh, like Counterpunch that the gentleman in the back mentioned and Common Dreams and Truth Out and so forth. The articles that we republish and publish newly at worldbeyondwar.org and warisacrime.org, uh, we certainly make every effort to make accurate, uh, there, you know, there's a, there's a huge value to looking at sites from other countries. You know, I, I, I don't. Yeah, even, even, I mean, go to The Guardian and all the British 
media you can find very useful reporting on the United States very often. Uh, go to the, the media from the, the countries in the crosshairs. Go to the Russian media and the Iranian media and so forth. Not for news about Russia, for news about the United States. You know, look outside of Russia for news about Russia. Look outside the United States for news about the United States. Um, but I mean, it's, uh, it's an endless list. Uh, and I think a lot of times it's not really media sources at all that you have to look to, but, but individuals and organizations and, uh, reports by nonprofits and by, uh, people through social media. And, and so I, you know, what I, what I try to get collected related to war and ending war at worldbeyondwar.org, uh, is, you know, the articles that I think are most useful and accurate. And if you ever find one, you know, please send it to me and we'll put that one there too. Um. David, thank you very much. I want to do another, I want to do another transition here from group questions to individual questions.